0: Welcome to the Life of Christ, Series 4, Term 2. This is Lesson 13. Uh, We're going to continue where we left off in Chapter 14, and uh, we are on page 17, I believe. Now, what I want to do, just to get us up to speed, I'm just going to go back a couple of pages. You guys don't have to. And I'm just going to start reading in Mark, Chapter 2, Verse 18. This is where all this begins. Um, It stays there. The disciples of John... And of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, that's Jesus, the disciples of John and, the, uh, and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And there's a question there, <laughs> okay? And it goes in the same, in verse 19, and Jesus said to them, he says, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom mourn and fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And that was actually a Jewish uh, tradition. Verse 20. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. All right. Now, we talked about that, um, about the time when Jesus is going to be taken away. And uh, we, we, we know that that was to do with the cross. Amen. And we know they were going to be fasting. We looked at some of the scriptures there before. Um, In John 16, I believe, verses 16, 20 and 22, I've got there, Jesus says, In just a little while I will be gone and you won't see me anymore. Uh, Then just a little while after that you will see me again. So they weren't going to fast a very long time. right? But in verse 20 he says, Truly you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to a wonderful joy when you see me again. And he says, No one can rob you of that joy. All right, so this brings us now to page 17, and I'm going to read um, a quote that I left you with last week, and we'll use that as a springboard to go forward. William Hendrickson writes, he says, The main lesson conveyed is that the new order of things which Jesus, by his coming, has ushered in, bringing healing to the sick, liberation to the demon-possessed, freedom from care, to the care-ridden, cleansing to the lepers, food to the hungry, restoration to the handicapped, and above all, salvation to those lost in sin. Does not fit into the old mold of man-ordained fasting. So there was, a new, there was something new coming in. Amen? And so all of this stuff was coming to an end and, and being taken away, in a sense. And um, what we're going to find is Jesus is going to give us a, a parable shortly, to talk about these things. But you know, some people can't let go of things that they're used to doing because it's a religious mindset and people love their religion. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Um, So let's continue on. Jesus is going to talk about this. He says, um, so then Jesus goes on to make it clear how inappropriate this would be by using two illustrations from daily life in the form of a parable and says to them, beginning in Luke chapter 5, verse 36, and this parallels... Mark 2.21 and Matthew 9.16. The reason I said that was the last verse that we read was Mark chapter 2 and verse 20. So this would be verse 21, but we're going to Luke's account because he's going to give us a bit more detail. And so it says that then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts or sews a piece of unshrunken cloth from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise the new makes a tear. I'll explain all this. For the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. So this first illustration is taken from the custom of patching clothes, and in particular, the process of mending an old garment. And in relation to this, Jesus effectively says, no one takes a piece of new, unshrunk cloth all right, to patch a hole in an old garment, because when you wash it, it would shrink... And tear away from the old garment. Do you, understand? you get the picture? Yeah. So, yeah, oh, oh good. <laughs> okay. Leaving the whole worse than ever. Meaning that the thing that was supposed to solve the problem will end up creating a much bigger problem in the end. All right? So, he's, remember again, he's going to be using this in terms of trying to hold on to all religious ideas and traditions and ways of doing things in the new order of things that are coming. Yeah. And it's just not going to work. Yeah, uh, Leon Morris says that this homely piece of wisdom would be immediately grasped by Jesus' audience and it brings out vividly the point that Jesus is not trying to patch up a worn-out Judaism. And boy, by that time it was worn out. I mean, it was in such a bad place that they didn't even recognize the Messiah when he came. So, Jesus then continues on to give a second illustration to help John's disciples understand that the coming new order of things will no longer fit into the old mold by saying, now in Luke chapter 5 and verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the old wineskin, and the wine will be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. Now, Arkent explains this. He says, in ancient culture, the skins of goats were stripped off as nearly whole as possible, and partly tanned, so that they could be filled with new wine. Their natural elasticity and strength would allow the fermenting new wine to expand. However, if new wine was put into old wineskins, that had already been stretched by the fermentation of their previous contents, their inflexible condition would cause them to burst, and both wine and wineskin would be lost. Can we see some parallels here? Okay. Because the Bible talks about wine as being the Holy Spirit. Oil and wine, yeah? And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking here at Judaism as being that old wineskin. And there is no way that the Holy Ghost is going to get poured into Judaism. <laughs> okay? He's, <laughs> he's coming into people. He's not coming into a religion. He's actually coming into people you understand? And so, that's one of the things that they need to really understand uh, and, and get. Now, accordingly, John MacArthur goes on to say that Jesus uses this as an illustration to teach that the forms of all rituals, such as ceremonial fasting, practiced by the Pharisees and John's disciples, are not fit for the new wine of the new covenant era. Um, excuse me, I'm on page 19 at the top. Um, In both analogies, the Lord is saying that what the Pharisees did in fasting or any other ritual had no part with the gospel. Amen? Are you getting all this? Okay. William MacDonald summarizes it well when he says that the outdated forms, ordinances, traditions, and rituals of Judaism were too rigid to hold the joy, the exuberance, and the energy of the new dispensation. Okay, I have to stop there. (laughs) Okay. This, This is key. This is how you can tell a religious person from a born again person that's not religious. Okay? Religious people, and I want you to notice there's, there, it's, it's, there is a rigidness to them that, you know, everything is, and I was talking to you about this on Sunday, in fact, about the letter of the law versus the spirit behind that law. Do you understand? And so, you know, even the Apostle Paul says you need to be careful that you don't get caught up in the letter of the law. Amen? Because what happens is people get to the place where, you know, they want to enforce the Torah, so to speak. They want to enforce the Word of God. And you have to really be careful because in different places, you know, as the Spirit leads, you need to do different things. And you really need to be led by the Spirit. In fact, even the letters that were written, the epistles that were written to Galatians and Ephesians and so on and so forth, all of them had a purpose behind them. And if you don't know the purpose, then you're going to misinterpret what was being said. And if you then take that and try to enforce it in a church that maybe didn't have that problem, then you end up with all kinds of religious traditions in a church that everybody's going, where did this come from? And why are we doing this? Amen? So, you know, again, we, that, that's kind of what this, where this is going. This, we were coming into an era of being Spirit-led. What an incredible thing. Do you know why that's so significant? Because the Spirit can lead anyone in any culture according to what's needed in that culture and in that area, in that place. Do, do you hear what I'm trying to say? Who cares if you want to eat it with a fork and a knife and you know... And so they said, well that's civilized. Well, to, to whom? To, you see? see, that's different. Okay? What was important is matters of the heart. Do you love your brother? Are you in strife? Do you have good relationships or bad? Are you selfish? You know, are you generous? Those are the things that were important. And those are the things that are the things that the spirit of God can lead you into and get you going in the right direction without all this other stuff getting in the way. See, this is why people say we don't want the white man's religion. Well, neither do I. I don't like any color religion. Okay, brown, white, whatever. Okay, amen. Religion is a religion, man, and they put it in bondage. Are you all with me? Amen? And so the thing is that we need to understand that, you know, that, that's what all of this is about. And so Jesus was saying, listen, I know you guys with your, you know, Judaism and all your rituals and all the stuff that you just love. Nobody cares. The Romans don't care. Okay, as if they would. Uh, most of the Gentiles won't care. Isn't it interesting? We're the church. We are now the believers. Look at where we are right now no sacrifices thank god okay and no ritualistic things i mean the closest thing we come to a, you know to a ritual is is communion and going to church on sunday that's pretty much it and even that you don't you know i mean because communion should be taken whenever you need it it's not a ritual it's it's something you do to remind yourself of something amen Just, and see that's exactly what was meant to happen with the with the with, with judaism um, was that they had all of these things in place for a reason, to remember something, and they forgot what it was about and ended up just doing it for the sake of doing it. Are you all with me? See, that's the reason why you know, people take communion. And a lot of times, I will bet that they don't know why they're taking communion. He went to the cross. A price was paid. He said, do this in remembrance of me and what I did. Amen? Okay, let's get back to this. So, from a slightly different perspective, the Spirit-filled Bible... Says that the old forms of Judaism could not contain the spiritual freshness of the gospel. Grace cannot be sowed into or poured into the old system of legalism. And so, rather than patching up a brittle, worn out, and obsolete system, Jesus came to offer a new life imparted by faith in Him. See, in a person, not in a thing. Amen. Alright, that's the reason Jesus goes and says in Luke 5, verse 38, But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So in terms of this wine, besides what's already been uh, discussed, there is an interesting reference, and I I talked to you about this before, in Acts 2.13, where it says, After the Holy Spirit descended upon all in the upper room, that when the believers spoke, some of the people in the street heard them in their own language and actually said they are full of new wine. Isn't that interesting? They were full of, yeah, okay. (laughs) They are full of the Spirit, but not that kind of Spirit. (laughs) Amen? Uh, Although this was said mockingly, it would in fact identify yet another aspect of what this new wine was, and that is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that the new wineskin would have to be the new creation. And why the Apostle Paul would go on to say in First Corinthians three sixteen, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you see the parallels? You are the new wineskin, and that new wine has been poured into you. Hallelujah. Amen. So returning to Luke chapter 5, verse 39 goes on to say, He says, And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new. For he says the old is better, or literally the old is good enough. Now, what is that saying? William Hendrickson uh, writes, and I'll explain this if you need more explanation. Verse 39 is a commentary on the ultra-conservatism, the ingrained and inflexible traditionalism of the Pharisees and their followers. They were constantly saying the old is good. So they rejected the new, fresh, life-imparting teaching of Jesus. Amen? So do you understand? See, uh, this is why I said that that's a problem that we have and will continue to have is people get used to something that they've been doing and my father did it and my grandfather did it and if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? And that's really what was happening and Jesus was saying we're going to have people like that that regardless of what I've said, regardless of all the analogies and everything else that this is not going to work in the old system. There are some people that are going to say, well, why change the system at all? Amen. So you know Jesus is good in that way. He's letting people know they're going to have opposition, and if people are that way, let them be. You can't do much about it. You can't force them. You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you know, can't make him drink. Anyway, nevertheless, a new precedent was set, and a new age dawned, called the Church Age, with Jesus saying in Matthew sixteen eighteen, "I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." And so, both new wine and the new wineskin were ultimately preserved. Okay, let's move on to the healing at the pool of Bethesda. I I didn't want to race through that because there was a, there was a lot of issues about that and you know we're also talking about old thinking. And can I just say this even now in the church age in the church there's still that kind of thinking and I have even noticed some some churches starting to become a little bit I don't know, Jewish? <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, man. You know, you know the, the, there is this thing that is going on out there. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. Where people are starting to move towards that sort of Jewish mentality. And it's a little bit concerning. You know, I love the Jews and everything, but they rejected their Messiah. And all the Jews that received him didn't, weren't Jews anymore. That's why Acts says they were first called Christians. So, you know, there's no such thing as a Jewish Christian. Do you know what I'm trying to say? That's like saying that's a dirty, clean person. (laughs) You're either dirty or you're clean. You can't be a dirty, clean person. You know what I'm trying to say, right? Amen? You you get what I'm saying? The people that wanted to remain Jewish were not Christians. So my big question is, how come you guys are starting to lean towards something that rejected the very thing that you are now? Amen? The place that they come from is that they say, well, the Bible says that if you bless Jews, then you'll be blessed. No, it says that, you know where that comes from? Who knows? Genesis chapter 12. God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, those that bless you, I'll bless. Those that curse you, I'll curse. Then you find out in Romans, Paul says, not all those that are from Abraham are, are of Abraham. Even though, in other words, he was, let me say it in another way. He was saying, even though you might have a genealogy that goes back to Abraham, that doesn't mean you've got Abraham's faith. And it's only those that have the faith of Abraham, they are the children of Abraham. You know with me, mean? And so that's why he was, he was introducing the church aid, and he's saying there are people that are going to come in, that are going to have his faith, And from a spiritual standpoint, are going to be his kids. And there are going to be people in the natural that would have been, you know, that are related to him, that aren't his kids because they don't have faith. Are you getting this? So, let me ask you a question now. Said all that to say this. (laughs) What does that mean to you? If you are a spiritual child of Abraham, those that bless you will be blessed. Those that want to bring you hurt and harm, they're going to be taken care of. You don't have to lift a finger. Just feel sorry for them. Seriously. And let me say this as well. Now you understand the fallacy behind the church saying, Oh, they're Jews, so we have to look after them. And how we treat them is going to be how we are going to be then blessed by God or not. Listen, man, we are meant to treat everybody well. Can I get an amen on that? Okay, Jew, whatever. Okay, And we're just meant to love because Jesus said, here is the royal command. Love everyone. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, So there should, listen, there should not be a distinction between, oh, I treat the Jew better than the Gentile. Because the Bible says, God is no respecter of persons. And as soon as you start doing that, you're sinning. You see where I'm going with this? So, can I ask a question that has a very simple answer? When people start doing that, are they sinning? Come on, guys, I gave you the answer. Yeah, they are! Because they are respecting persons. Get it? So, if you ever get a nod in your stomach when somebody starts saying stuff like that, now you know why. Because that's the Holy Ghost letting you know that's sin. That's a good thing, that's not a God thing. Okay, alright, okay. Now let's move on. (laughs) So following this exchange with the disciples of John and the Pharisees about fasting, the next event recorded in chronological order is found in John chapter 5. John MacArthur introduces this portion of scripture from John chapters 5 through to 7. He says, this section evidences the shift from reservation and hesitation about Jesus as Messiah to outright rejection. And what we are going to see in the next 18 verses of John chapter 5 is where it all begins. This is going to be a pivotal point of where everything starts going wrong. Okay, the, They're going to now answer the question, why would somebody who was so benevolent, who was so kind, who was so giving, why would he be crucified? What is it that he did? You know how they say, if they smoke, this fire? They're sort of asking, you know, maybe there was something. Maybe he wasn't that great for him to be crucified. So, this begins that. Okay? Alright. They're going to explain this now. So, what we're going to see again in the next 18 verses of John chapter 5 is where it all begins. Before intensifying in chapter 6 with many of his disciples abandoning him. That's in John 6 and verse 66. I've got the reference on the bottom. And religious leaders trying to arrest him unsuccessfully in John chapter 7. Now as for John 5, or chapter 5 itself, commenting on verses 1 through 18, John MacArthur writes, Although opposition to Jesus smoldered beneath the surface, the story of Jesus' healing at the pool of Bethesda highlights the beginning of open hostility towards him in Jerusalem, in the southern parts of Palestine. So, beginning in John chapter 5, verse 1, it says that, and after this, there was a feast of the Jews. They're always having feasts, aren't they? No. <laughs> okay. All right. So, sorry. So it says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, which in all probability was either Passover, held in April, or the Feast of Tabernacles, held in October. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. All right. D.A. Carson says that John repeatedly ties his narrative to various Jewish feasts. This is the only one that is not identified more precisely probably because the material in John chapter 5 is not meant to be thematically related to it. Okay, So it didn't kind of matter which feast this was. In other words, this feast played no significant part in the events that were about to unfold, except that it was the reason why Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, So William MacDonald explains that as Jehovah of the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus had been the one who instituted the Passover in the first place. Now as a man... Obedient to his father, he obeyed the very laws which he had made. Interesting, isn't it? Okay, I thought that was awesome. Alright, that's why it, it was so ridiculous when the religious leaders kept accusing Jesus of breaking the law. It showed how little they actually knew and understood about the law of God and worse, how far off track and in error they all were. So this is really important. This is a very important point what they accused Him of doing wrong, in doing so, they showed themselves up for getting it wrong. Do you understand? So, as much as they thought that they had some, you know, some kind of ground to stand on, they actually didn't. You know, because here was the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay? This, was, this is what it was all meant to be about. It was Him. And there He was, amongst them, they not only not recognized him, but they also didn't realize that what they were doing now had, was coming against the very thing that was instituted to begin with. Isn't it funny how that happens with a lot of laws? They start out you know, uh, designed to do something to be beneficial in some way and they end up, you know again this is, this, this is the, what the curse does to things it takes what was meant to be for good and it starts twisting it to where at the end of the day, the very thing that was designed to be helpful and beneficial ends up being hurtful and a problem. You all with me? That's why we must must not make religion out of things. Amen. You know, it it is so easy to, to go down that track. You know, you're playing a song and somebody gets healed and you think, "Oh, let's play that song next Sunday because that you know that was a song? Everybody got healed, the person got healed on. Now you made a religion." That's how easy it is. You know, in two seconds, you got religion going. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? It's not that. Who knows what was going on? You know, your heart may have been in the right place. The, there might have been an anointing because the musician was in a good place. The person that you were praying for might have been in a good place. All three of you might have been in a great place. So a miracle takes place. Next day, you know, you fought with your wife. The other guy kicked his cat. You know, somebody, you, know and you all come in and you play the same song. Except, you know, it's not being played the same way. But it's a song. You want the song? Here's the darn song. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's not going to do nothing for nobody. Are you all with me? Again, we have to be so careful that we don't see something and go, aha, uh-huh, that works. So let's do that again. Those who are led by the Spirit, they are God's kids. Amen? The children of God. Okay, so let's get back to this. As a final note, nothing is said about his disciples in the entire 5th chapter of John. Either because John only wanted to mention the leader of the group, even though the entire group went up, or Jesus was in fact on his own in this particular instance, something that R. Kent Hughes will capitalize on in his commentary as we'll soon see. Now, now that Jesus was in Jerusalem, John goes on to say, in John chapter 5 and verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, all right, which was where sheep were led for the purpose of being sacrificed in the nearby temple court, a pool which is called in Hebrew or literally uh, Aramaic Bethesda, which is translated house of mercy or house of outpouring, having five porches. Now, we are going to take a break here. I wanted to read that. We'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll pick it up in that verse in the next session.